You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm Ankit Panda, your host from New York City. And uh, today, I'm happy to say that I'm joined by a longtime listener, but first-time caller. Isn't that right, James? That's right. I'm one of the big, big fans of your podcast. So it's <laughs> nice to be here. Well, so um, the voice you hear on the other end of the line is uh, James Crabtree, who is joining me today from Singapore. He is an associate professor of practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School in Singapore and a senior fellow at the School Center on Asia and Globalization. And more excitingly, James has just written a very well-reviewed book uh, that I must confess I have not managed to get through just yet, but it is sitting on my nightstand and has a very attractive purple cover. So if you see it in the bookstores, I encourage you to pick it up. It is called The Billionaire Raj. But James, um, before we uh, jump into today's conversation, I do want you to uh, introduce yourself a little and also just uh, tell us a little bit about the book, which I know you've gotten quite good at because you've been doing that a lot recently. Thanks, Ankit. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm sitting here in Singapore where I'm um... I'm at the Lee Kuan Yew School, but for five years between 2011 and 2016, I worked as a foreign correspondent for the Financial Times in Mumbai, um, uh, where I covered Indian finance, uh, banking, a bunch of different sectors in the Indian economy, but also looked at um, India's increasing role in the global economy, uh, whether that's its financial linkages uh, or the investment profile of its companies, and to some degree, uh, how that affected its geopolitical position. So the book, as you said, is called The Billionaire Raj, and it's about the rise of India's new super rich. It provides a, a kind of fun profile of uh, the tycoon class in India and how they uh, are changing the country, um, touching on issues of growing inequality, crony capitalism, and the changes um, in India's industrial model. Um, but I suppose from the point of view of your listeners in a podcast that's predominantly about geopolitics, uh, underlying this, there's an argument about how India's internal economic makeup will affect its geopolitical posture. I mean, I think we know that uh, if you take the example of China, that a lot of its developing geopolitical position is a response to uh, the activities of its business elite. So that might be the requirement to um, capture resources um, in Africa or around emerging Asia and how that enlarges your sense of your own self-interest. Um, it might happen in other ways. But I, I mean, I think it's reasonable to say that one of the drivers of um, the changing geopolitical posture of a rising power are the activities of its business elite. And so to some extent, I think as we try and puzzle through uh, India's place in what we're now calling the free and open Indo-Pacific, then, then a sharper and more acute understanding of the activities and incentives of Indian business is, is not a bad way um, of beginning to look at that. But then more generally, uh, I mean, I think India's own path following China, trying to secure resources, trying to have a broader conception of the national interest um, will also be a, a good way of understanding how it begins to position itself as um, what it calls a leading power first in South Asia and then in the region more broadly. So although the book itself is not um, a book squarely on geopolitics, I think we could have a good conversation today looking at India's changing uh, role in the region vis-a-vis -vis China, vis-a-vis -vis America, looking at trade deals like uh, RCEP in particular. Um, and seeing how we think all of these things are going to play out. Well, exceptional, James. I think you've just framed the discussion for us today, saving me a little bit of effort. Um, but you just said something very interesting, uh, because when I think about Indian foreign policy, I imagine, or at least Indian foreign policy making and uh, Indian grand strategy, if such a thing does exist, um, I imagine a fairly 
hermetic and insulated policy elite um, that doesn't necessarily interface with the kinds of people that you describe in your book, the the flying titans of India's new Gilded Age. Um, but you seem to think, or at least you implied in your remarks just now, that the billionaires, the billionaire Raj, is sort of um, at the vanguard in some ways of driving India's position in the world increasingly, if not if not today, then in the future. Um, and you know, when I think back to um, India's economic development, and I think back to the early 90s, the period of liberalization, certainly you do see changes in Indian geopolitical thinking at the time, um, most prominently, uh, I suppose, the advent of the Look East policy under uh, Prime Minister P.V. Narasimha Rao accompanies the period of liberalization, and we see sort of the, the reasoning there. Um, but could I ask you to talk a bit more about about the um, the interfacing that you see between India's um, business elites and the private sector elites uh, and its sort of um, the foreign policy mandarins that have traditionally driven the country's foreign policy over its uh, 70 years of independence? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a rather fascinating and perhaps under-examined area, um, it, the interplay between the financial and business elites and the conception of a country's sense of itself and its strategic posture. Um, so take a step back. So one of the arguments I make in the book is that there's a, an analogy between India and Russia um, in the sense that both countries have uh, a, a kind of um, huge increase in wealth in their tycoon class at a particular moment after liberalization. Um, but in a broader sense, uh, I'm more optimistic about India's future than Russia's because I think its corporate sector is more vibrant, has a lot more to offer. Uh, but if you take the example of Russia, you have there a, a very pure example in which you have an interaction between the what they call, you know the oligarchs as opposed to the the, the Indian oligarchs. So the oligarchs and Putin working hand in glove, and and it, it's sort of fairly clear in the Russian example that uh, you know the kind of the lords of capital uh, and the political elite are working fairly closely together, and that that affects in some ways Russia's behavior in its neighborhood um, and uh, further abroad. In India's case, I think it's a more subtle relationship. So you can see some examples where particular private sector projects end up having quite a big impact on um, India's posture in its neighborhood. So one example would be um, GMR, which is an Indian infrastructure conglomerate, uh, which uh, tried to build an airport in the Maldives, for instance. Um, and in 2012, the Maldives took that airport back. And I, I think that was a sort of moment of, of kind of awakening for the Indian foreign policy elite. That was part of a broader pattern in which Indian conglomerates were going out and kind of doing things in foreign countries quite aggressively over the course of the latter 2000s and um, the early part of this decade. And in a sense, then the, the foreign policy elite has to catch up with what its tycoons are doing and, and adapt to um, how that changes the, the country's interests. Um, in a broader sense, however, India's corporate elite is more important than in China in this particular sense, which is that um, one of China's great strengths is that it has powerful state-backed banks and then state-run companies that can go off and in a sense act as sort of agents of Chinese foreign policy. One of India's weaknesses is that it's doesn't, it doesn't have these equivalent state-run organizations. So it is relying on um, its private sector uh, tycoons to play that role. Now, they haven't been as successful in doing that. The, the tycoons don't particularly like being used as agents of Indian foreign policy. But if you look at 
uh, power stations in Sri Lanka, if you look at mining operations uh, in Afghanistan, uh, if you look at who is meant to be building roads uh, linking India and Myanmar, then these are all private sector organizations in India. It, it, it's the sort of conglomerate companies that form the backbone of the Indian industrial economy. Now, so far, they haven't been anywhere near as successful as China in pushing um, sort of India's sense of itself or developing projects. But nonetheless, it's clear that as India tries to take a greater strategic role in its immediate region in particular, I mean, this will be mostly focused around South Asia, but maybe to some degree in East Africa and elsewhere around Southeast Asia as India's sort of footprint increases, then these private sector conglomerates and the tycoons that run them are going to have a, a sort of more substantive role than their equivalents in China, simply because India is a more private sector-led country. Mm -hmm. I think you're leading us in a very interesting direction here, uh, because I do want to talk to you about the growing uh, Indian sense of unease about China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and as you note, uh, China does have the great advantage of being able to essentially um, steward its state-owned enterprises to undertake a variety of projects overseas, many of these projects uh, certainly uh, not being obviously profitable, many of them designed to operate effectively as uh, debt traps. Um, and on the Indian side, uh, the common, uh, the conventional wisdom is that India doesn't have the kind of deep pockets that China has, at least the Indian public sector. So what you're saying now about Indian private sector conglomerates uh, really interests me because, um, you know, I would imagine that these are, um, on one level, you do have them responding better to market incentives that you will not see Indian firms necessarily um, undertaking clearly um, a projects that just clearly have no economic logic or no logic of profit. Um, and I wanted to sort of, uh, you know, eke that out a bit more and uh, and see, you know, structurally, is there a competitive model underlying this for India? Is there a way that uh, public-private partnerships in any way, um, depending on, you know, whether it be the current Indian government or a, um, a perhaps government that's slightly more willing to take risks in this endeavor, uh, do you see any um, any scope for India to really leverage this to its advantage, at least within its immediate neighborhood? I, I think it's hard to see. So, I mean, at a very crude level, is the, the Indian model, which is more private sector led or the Chinese model, which is more state directed, is there a case to say that the Indian model might be more effective? Um, and I think the answer to that is almost certainly no. Um, that in the end, uh, it putting return on investment to one side, if your objective is to, in a sense, project state power, then the Chinese model is clearly going to be more effective because you can just sort of order these state-backed companies to do what you want them to do. Um, however, if you're asking a different question, which is, would it be possible as India's economy develops uh, to, for, for in a sense, the state to enhance the role of these private sector companies so that they were more aggressive in pursuing uh, goals which were congruent to India's foreign policy objectives. And I think that's certainly true. At the moment, you have a, a kind of dual problem. Uh, the first problem is that these private sector conglomerates are actually in rather bad financial health. That's one of the things that I deal with in my book, The Billionaire Raj. So in addition to, um, I, I say there's three fault lines in India's developing a political economy, one of which is rising inequality, one of which is crony capitalism, and one of which is what I call the boom and bust cycle of the Indian industrial economy. And at the moment, we're in the bust portion of that cycle um, because the Indian tycoons borrowed far too much money in the middle of the 2000s and got themselves into a lot of trouble and are now struggling with very high levels of corporate debt. And the banking system 
uh, is also struggling uh, under bad loans. Uh, and so until they fix that problem, then none of the companies want to do anything. And so part of the reason why Indian conglomerates over the last sort of three or four years when Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been in government, they haven't been very adventurous. Um, and that's partly because they themselves are just in very bad health. Um, but then there's a second issue, which is that they also understand the risks of these things. So if you look at China's BRI at the moment, then, you know, in all sorts of areas in Malaysia and Pakistan, um, in Sri Lanka, you're beginning to see the extreme risks uh, which come along with attempting to develop kind of grand infrastructure projects outside of your own borders. And, and China, in many ways, is making a big mess of this. Um, the Indian companies don't even want to go anywhere near that because they understand how difficult this is. And, and so if they are going to be encouraged to do that in the future, then I think you know, the, the intuition behind your question is that India would need to find ways to mitigate that risk, um, either by finding ways of doing credit enhancement or risk reduction or some form of public-private partnership. You know, there's all sorts of different models in the way that you can do this. But um, I, I think that, you know, it may very well be that if India wants to see its biggest companies act, in a sense, as a sort of arm of its foreign policy, then it it's going to need to find ways of helping them mitigate the risks that come with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think I think I'm going to shift gears a bit uh, and ask you about something you brought up uh, in the introduction, uh, which is RCEP, uh, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is um, on this geopolitics podcast. Um, we often refer to RCEP, but I don't think we've actually really delved into this um, trade agreement, which has the potential to really be a game changer in Asia. Uh, so for our listeners, I'll just lay out what RCEP is. Uh, so it's the 10 member states of ASEAN uh, plus ASEAN plus three, which is China, Japan and South Korea, plus the members of ASEAN plus six, which includes India, Australia and New Zealand. Um, and there is now a push to conclude the terms of RCEP by the end of 2018, which does seem ambitious. And James, the question I have uh, I have for you is um, about India and RCEP, and I know you've written a bit about this, uh, not in your book, but in your um, in your columns, uh, and you've been thinking about this a bit. Um, but really, when it comes to um, Prime Minister Modi uh, and RCEP, um, what is really the dilemma here? Can you just describe that for us a bit? Yeah, and I think if you if you take a, a bit of a jump backwards, then there's a whole range of ways, and you've discussed them a lot on this podcast, in which the three great powers that are emerging in Asia over the you know the course of this century so China India and the US are, are trying to kind of figure out what the the framework is in different domains strategic economic um, what have you and so one of those is trade policy and and the way in which trade agreements that take in most of Asia are are going to work. Um, so you on the podcast before with previous guests have talked a lot about um, TPP, now known as the Comprehensive and Progressive uh, TPP, which is the US designed um, um, big trade agreement, which the US under Trump then abandoned. So RCEP is in a sense the other one. Um, it was set up, as you said, um, with ASEAN at the core, the Southeast Asian um, regional body. Um, but the idea is that it will be uh, the body that brings together India and China and ASEAN and a few other countries. So if it could be formed, um, it would have some economic benefits. It's not as deep a trade agreement as TPP, but nonetheless, it's a reasonable step forward. And so most economists tend to think that this is a pretty good idea. India, however, faces particular challenges in trying to sign up to this. So most of the other um, 
members, particularly China and ASEAN, are very good at manufacturing um, and export manufacturing. India is not very good at manufacturing and already has a big deficit um, of manufactured goods. So were it to sign up um, to this trade agreement, it faces the prospect of being um, sort of swamped in cheaper exports from much more efficient Asian economies, and that's a problem. Uh, Equally, India still is a much poorer economy than almost all of those competitors. So it's only just come out of officially being a poor economy and is now a kind of lower middle income economy. Um, And therefore, it has a very large and inefficient agriculture sector. And in the TPP, you have countries like Australia, which have world leading, very efficient um, agriculture, dairy production. And so the sort of second risk is that if India opens itself up, uh, it will get swamped uh, with Australian, you know, milk and cheese and lamb and that kind of thing. That's a big problem. Um, and this is particularly a problem as India heads into an election. So um, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is four years into a five-year term. We assume that there will be a national election, you know, at some point before next spring, probably something like next May. Um, and so it's very difficult for India to sign up to this. As you say, uh, the idea is that uh, RCEP is meant to be signed in this calendar year, I, I don't really know anyone who really thinks that that's going to happen, but they keep kind of inching towards it. But India is really the big stumbling block. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it has those strategic interests, which are you know, hard to, to wish away. In the end, India's economy is just very different from the other economies uh, in that group. But also, although Prime Minister Narendra Modi is sort of in a titular sense, sort of he spe- makes speeches about being pro-globalization and pro-trade, there's very little internal political support for trade liberalization inside India that the, the, the sort of um, median median voter or median median policymaker tends to be against this sort of stuff. And so it's quite hard to build a coalition for for change. Um, and then you mentioned an article that I wrote. This is a column that I write for Nikkei. Um, I mean, I made the argument there that in a sense, Modi only has his, himself to blame for this, that Modi would like to sign up to RCEP because it would be, in a sense, the embodiment of uh, India's Act East policy, which I think you touched on earlier, which is the idea that India seeks much closer integration with East Asia, because that's where um, the economic action is uh, and wants to orient itself away from a focus on its Western uh, frontier where you have Pakistan, Afghanistan, countries in the Middle East that don't have much in the way of economic vibrancy. And so RCEP should be India's ticket to uh, actualizing that Act East policy. But in a sense, because Modi has been more timid than he should have been on certain kinds of economic reforms. He hasn't reformed the agricultural sector very aggressively, hasn't had a lot of success in improving India's manufacturing uh, for various reasons we can go into if you want. Uh, but because of that, he is now in, he's now basically stuck. He hasn't laid the groundwork which would allow India to, to sign up to this agreement with confidence, and he's not able to build the internal political coalition. And so the, the, this trade agreement is a little bit sort of stuck in the mud at the moment. And the risk with all of this, the much bigger geopolitical risk, is that if India isn't in this agreement, then effectively it becomes a kind of Chinese-dominated space. Mm-hmm. So if you have ASEAN and Australia and a few other countries and China, then it's pretty clear what the, the gravitational pull of that of that trade agreement will be, that this will, in a sense, become kind of part of China's broader sort of sphere of economic influence. So both from India's point of view and the broader and the broader West, um, it's in the, the it's in the interest of those powers to have India in this agreement. But at the moment, it's quite difficult to see how India is going to be able to sign up to it 
at least in the short term. Yeah, no, that's my sense too. Um, and you know, this might be one of um, this could have been at least one of Modi's um, bold leaps, uh, so to speak. But uh, he's made a couple of those with uh, demonetization and GST, and those have caused him headaches domestically. And I think, uh, as you note, we are heading towards an election, and the BJP, being the large tent that it is, uh, doesn't. You know, I'm not expecting the kind of supermajority we saw in 2014 next year. Um, I don't want to get too much into uh, prognosticating about Indian elections. That's always a perilous task, anyways. Um, but it is certainly um, a uh, a missed opportunity. So, do you see an RCEP minus India really realistically being the likeliest option here for this arrangement? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, ASEAN for um, you know is absolutely masterful at fudging things. Uh, so <laughs> it has a consensus. It has a consensus based yeah. approach to negotiation, which, in a sense, for its adherents, this is one of ASEAN's great strengths that um, you know they try and bring everyone along. So I would expect in the end they will probably come up with some kind of fudge in which india gets to kind of come along in some some limited status um, and sort of catches up later rather than getting to the point where um india is kicked out and they they have to do this without india i, I think that for the leading asean economies like singapore where i am that's not something that they want because the asean economies actually want to have they also want to have india in because they don't like the idea of, in a sense, being uh, stuck next to a gigantic China. So, so mm -hmm. most ASEAN economies want to have a balance in the region with America playing a reasonably full role and not disappearing, and China and India kind of balancing each other out. That's the ideal position for ASEAN. So I, my instinct is that they'll try and find some sort of fudge, um, but the other option is just to kind of delay and that's what I think will happen in the first instance. That they've had something like 22 rounds of negotiation. All of this is all of this happens in a very non-transparent way. Um, so they have these kind of secret, secretive um, negotiations, and I'd expect them just to keep doing that for a while. And then in the end, if things come to a to a sort of breaking point, then they'll probably come up with some elegant compromise in which India is allowed to sort of stay in, um, but in a delayed sense. That would be my guess. Um, although I should say I have no particular insight into the negotiating process myself. That's fair. Well, I will say um, I'm not one to bet against ASEAN's ability to uh, come up with that fudge, as you say. So uh, I think I'm going to bet on that. Um, uh, uh, to, um, uh, to wind us um, up, uh, today, uh, I did want to ask you a bit about uh, something that normally doesn't come up in our Asia Geopolitics podcast, which is Brexit. Uh, it has come up a couple times, um, and certainly the UK as an actor uh, in East Asia and the Indo-Pacific uh, we have talked about. Uh, but I wanted to ask you specifically about um, the UK as an economic actor in Asia. There's interest in uh, all sorts of bilateral trade deals, uh, Global Britain even revitalizing the Commonwealth uh, and its uh, Asian members, uh, India obviously being chief among them. Um, when, you, um, when you think about Brexit, uh, assuming that Brexit does uh, happen in the way that uh, Prime Minister Theresa May at least thinks it will happen, uh, not a completely hard Brexit, but something a little bit softer, if not a completely soft Brexit either. But um, uh, And you look at Asia, um, what um, what opportunities do you see um, in, in Asia for the UK? Uh, and maybe you can uh, talk a bit specifically about uh, India as far as, uh, as far as Brexit goes in Asia. Yeah, it's a difficult question. Um, so as you know, you may guess uh, I was not in favor of Brexit, as most people with most people with half a brain uh, weren't. Um, nonetheless, I, I think the odds are that, although these odds are, I have to say, decreasing almost by the day, I think the odds are still that Brexit in some form is is going to happen. Although at the moment, it really does look like uh, the UK is heading for uh, a, a kind of crisis. 
um, because there is no parliamentary majority for any particular form of Brexit. And so I would say the, the odds of at least a, a, a second uh, election uh, or people gravitating towards a second referendum uh, are growing. Um, now, what this means in in Asia is somewhat complicated. So in, in the end, in all of the different ways in which the Brexiteers did not prepare for the Brexit process, then one of the most stark is, um, you know, what would happen to Britain's relations in, in strategically important parts of the world. To the largest extent, our relationships with, you know, with ASEAN, with China, with India, they do tend to be funneled through the EU. And so if you're a Brexit optimist, you can say that this now provides the UK with opportunities to strike new trade deals and, and that sort of thing. But I suspect that that, that isn't going to happen. Um, it will be very difficult for the UK to make any progress, you know, with countries like China or India. I mean, this is sort of basically impossible. And the task is going to be, in a sense, sort of, you know, scrambling to create some useful bilateral relationships out of the rubble um, that is left of, of, you know, what the UK used to get out of the EU. So one particularly, in one particular kind of intriguing example, um, is it has been floated that um, the UK should actually try and join the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and in fact, I wrote an op-ed saying that this isn't such a ridiculous idea. Uh, in the end, this is still highly economically suboptimal for the UK. Um, we don't actually do that much trade with Asia um, compared to France or Germany or Holland. I mean, in, in the end, if you look at the economics of trade, proximity still matters much more than, than you tend to think. And so, you know, the vast majority of British trade happens within the European Union. It's very tiny with countries like Malaysia or Indonesia. Nonetheless, you might as well make the best of what you can. And so um, it's not entirely ridiculous to suggest that, um, you know, if you have Canada and Australia within the, the TPP, you might have the UK when it enlarges at some point in the future. And so I think in the end, Britain has to try and be imaginative about how it uh, reforms these links. Um, India, you mentioned, is a, is a very good example of this. So this is beloved as an example of the, the you mentioned global Britain, which is the kind of tagline for the free trading optimistic brexiteers now most of what they talk about is a complete fantasy they live in a in a kind of they live in a kind of la la land in which somehow you're going to be able to do all sorts of magical things when you're free of the european union which doesn't bear much scrutiny um nonetheless i mean i suppose again you have to try and think imaginatively about what opportunities will emerge the problem is that at the moment um relations between the uk and india are in a sort of pretty complicated space because the kind of politics that Britain now has in the Brexit era actually make it much more difficult to give India the kind of things that it wants. And so, um, you know, what does India want out of a bilateral relationship with the UK? Um, it wants visas. I mean, both we were just talking about RCEP, um, at, but this is also true in relation to, um, to the UK. What India tends to want is free movement of people. Uh, it has lots of clever people and it wants them to be able to go and kind of work in IT services jobs in other countries, whether that's within Southeast Asia or in London. Uh, Brexit politics means that Britain's visa policy is getting much tighter. And so that has created a lot of bad headlines between the UK and India. There's also getting back to the subject of my book, there's a particular issue uh, between the UK um, and India with regards to uh, a certain class of kind of fugitive tycoons. Um, so you have people like Vijay Malia, the 
former Kingfisher Airlines uh, head and a couple of others uh, who have, in a sense, escaped from India where they were getting into trouble with the law and ended up hiding out in London. And this has also created some rather bad headlines between um, India and the UK. And so, in a sense, although I was never in favor of Brexit, I think there's quite a lot. You know, in the end, if you're going to leave the European Union, then what have you got left? The global break, the global Britain framework is not a bad one. I mean, in the end, you, you've got to try and do the best you can as an independent country outside of the EU. But the politics and the policies that Mrs. May's government are following often make it more, much more difficult to pursue that vision. So I have to say, I'm not particularly optimistic about the possibilities for my own country to, you know, craft out some, some economically prosperous um, new role for itself uh, in Asia outside the European Union. I mean, I think this is definitely a kind of second best world. But if that is the world that we're heading for, then, uh, you know, we have to try and uh, kind of recraft our relationships as a a sort of mid-level power like Australia or Canada. And there's some prospect to do that. I mean, you can see Australia at the moment in particular is is kind of making quite interesting changes in its foreign policy. Um, it's investing in its military. It's changing as the geopolitics of Asia is changing. And I don't see any particular reason why, why Britain couldn't do that as well. I, I just think that it would be better if it had decided to do that within the European Union. But uh, if that's not where we're headed, then maybe this will be the best that we can do. Mm -hmm. Well, Brexit is maybe a little bit of a downer to end the discussion on. So uh, I'm going to ask you, James, uh, now that you've written this book about India uh, and you you know, no longer live in India, you're in Singapore now, I did want to ask you, uh, you know, what's next for you? What are you working on now? What do you think your uh, intellectual interests are? Uh, or where are they headed after uh, Indians, uh, India's high-flying uh, billionaires? Well, so I, I now sit, as you mentioned in your introduction, in a center at the Lee Kuan Yew School called the Center on Asia and Globalization. And the, the areas that I am focusing on at the moment are partly trade, so we've talked about that, and partly uh, regional infrastructure competition, which basically means BRI, um, and in a sense how that's going, uh, but also the developing response to that, uh, which involves uh, partially India, but to a greater extent Japan, to some degree America, the you know the, the coordinations that you've talked about before. Um, and sitting in Singapore, you have a you've got a great vista on this developing new era of globalization, which tends to be based more around infrastructure competition than about um, trade agreements. And so that is what I've become interested in. I mean, it seems to me that this is one of the most, if not the most interesting um, issues in the world at the moment, that there's a, a new great game being played out uh, amongst these countries. So Robert Kaplan, the, the sort of journalist and geopolitical author, um, has said that Southeast Asia will be for the 21st century what what sort of Western Europe was for the 20th. This is the the, the ground upon which the the battles between the great powers will be fought, and I think you can already begin to see that happening um, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, the recent election in Myanmar, and so in a sense, what I'm hoping to do over the next couple of years is is travel around this region and see some of these big infrastructure projects and the politics that that go with them. Um, and to try and chart out how particularly China, but to some degree, these other powers are going to make their presence felt around this part of the world and, and what will be the politics that comes from that. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. Who knows if there'll be another book in it? I don't know. But at the moment, I feel like I'd like to go exploring again, having been stuck in a room writing a book and then promoting it for most of the last two years. 
Well, whether or not there's a book, uh, I'd be glad to have you back on to uh, talk about some of those things on the podcast again. Well, thanks very much. As I say, you you weren't um, you weren't making this up. I'm a I'm a big fan and listener of the podcast. So uh, amongst all of the other random things I've been doing to promote uh, the book and talk about it, then actually this has been one of the biggest thrills. So keep um keep keep going and keep doing it, both you and uh, both you and your co-host uh, do a power of good work. So um, uh, I'll look forward to being a listener next time around. Well, thanks a lot for joining me, James. This was a terrific discussion. I think it gave our listeners a a lot to think about. Uh, So that's, again, James Crabtree, author of The Billionaire Raj, which uh, you can pick up, I'm sure, at uh, any uh, any and all of the uh, popular online outlets, or if you prefer the brick-and-mortar variety, I'm sure it's available there, too. Um, For listeners, if you uh, like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't left us a review, please do so. You can do that on either iTunes, Google Play, or any of the other podcast providers that really helps get the word out about the show. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.